श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए श्री श्री राधा गोविंद की जाए गौर प्रेमानंदे हरि So we are discussing the second verse of Rupa Goswami's Upadesh Amritam. Atyahara prayashas chaprajalpo nimagraha janasangas jalolyam chasadvi bhakti vinashati. So the third thing that he mentions that is detrimental to bhakti, prajalpo, it's connected with vachovegam, mentioned in the first verse. Vacha means words, vegam again means urge, so the urge to speak is strong and it should be controlled. And here in this second verse he uses the word prajalpo. He says this is a kind of talking that is uh, not conducive to bhakti. And so there's, again, as we've already discussed to some extent, there's some scope for talking in the context of bhakti. So the strong urge to speak can be harnessed by speaking about Krishna. And as we know, and we cited the sutra in this connection, ikshater nashabda, one cannot say enough about Krishna. Words cannot do justice, so there's much to be said. So considerable scope for harnessing this urge to speak in a uh, user-friendly way. Not that you will, in other words, have to stop speaking and observe a vow of silence, mona vrata, only to cheat and write on the sheet, on the slate, bring me water, bring me, bring me food. No. But, again, obviously some kind of talking is counterproductive, and Rupa Goswami describes it as prajalpo. It means, in another way, it was spoken to by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to Raghunath Das Goswami. You know that Raghunath Das Goswami very much wanted to have the darshan of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and get personal instructions from him. He had gone to great lengths to come under the uh, personal shelter of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He had met Mahaprabhu and asked to join his group, and Mahaprabhu told him, don't be a crazy fellow. He was young, and he told him to be patient, and a time will come when it's appropriate. And so, uh, of course, Mahaprabhu knew his elders closely, and so one has to be a little careful in situations like this. Once Pujapad Sridhar Maharaj personally told me that... Um, Swami Maharaj, as he would affectionately refer to his dear friend and godbrother, my Gurudev, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, had approached him to take sannyas, to accept the renounced order of life from him. And this was after the disappearance of Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur. And he said, but I knew his family very well. Sridhar Maharaj lived in the house of Prabhupada in Calcutta. Prabhupada had two flats. And I think number six and number seven, what is it? Sita Banerjee Lane or something like that, anyway, in Calcutta. And he lived in one with his wife and children, and the other one was uh, like a guest flat. And at some point, after the breakup of the institution of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur, the Godiamath, he gave the second flat, the guest flat, to Pujapatridhar Marsh to stay in, and from there to base out of, to do some preaching. And so he lived there for six years. So he knew Prabhupada's family intimately, his wife and uh, children and, and so forth. So he told me that um, when Swami Marsh asked me for sannyas, I suggested a little caution. After all, family life can be frustrating sometimes, and it can be an impetus for such a departure, but leaving family life should be best based on something more than frustration, but rather on more emotion, more love and more attachment for Krishna rather than for family members and, and so forth. And he said, but other than that, my main concern was that because I knew his family members very well, if I had given him sannyas, they might have come and harassed me here at the Moth. <laughs> and uh, I like my peaceful living here quietly and so forth. He was very <laughs> disposed towards uh, living a quiet, quiet life. 
you know, he didn't want to venture out to make uh, students collect a following and so forth. After the departure of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, although many nice people approached him, he turned them down, and others were accepting students and so forth. Even Babatrini, who we mentioned the other day, Prabhupada's sister, Pishima, approached Sridhar Maharaj for initiation first, but he said, no, I'm not qualified. And um, so she went to another godbrother. But um, ultimately he got the uh, domicile in, uh, in Namadweep by negotiating at Ek Chakra, the birthplace of Nityananda Prabhu, with Nitai Chand by making a prayer to him for residence in the Dham. And he had preached in Gaudiamat and under the direction of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur for some time, and uh, he was disappointed to see the state of affairs after his disappearance, as many were, and so he thought to retire and do bhajan in Navadweep. But he got a message back from Nityananda Prabhu that you are asking for my mercy, but you don't give your mercy to anybody. So he took it as a... He reasoned back. He said, so all right, if I give my mercy to someone, then you'll let me stay in, in Navadweep. So I'll stay in Navadweep, and I won't run around hither and thither trying to collect people. But if nice people come to me, I won't turn them away either. So he made a kind of compromise with Nityananda Prabhu. Apparently, the Abhidut was satisfied and Siddharmarsh was residing happily for many years in Nabhadweep and he didn't want his bhajan to be disturbed by family members of one of his godbrothers coming and harassing him for taking away their father or their husband and, and so forth. So sometimes in uh, these type of dealings one has to be a little practical and to some extent for this reason also Mahabrabhu advised, well, I know you're Govardhan and what was the other one? Hiranya. Hiranya and Govardhan. They were uh, close with Mahaprabhu's family. He knew them and um, they were the keepers of Raghunathas. So he said, they need to be patient and you stay with your family. and An opportunity will come. You should look for that and then you can perhaps make your way. And so, of course, he did. And um, he made his way at one point, stealing away from home and going through the countryside, not across the main road, to reach Jagannath Puri, a long trek. And he went not on the main road for fear that his father and relatives would come and apprehend him and bring him back. And indeed, they did go along the main road. And because he wasn't there, they could not find him. And he was successful in reaching Jagannath Puri and getting the shelter of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And at that time, Mahaprabhu put him under the care of Sarup Damodar. But he repeatedly approached Sarup and asked if I could have directly the audience of Mahaprabhu and get some instruction from him. And I would like that very much. And Sarup naturally put it before Goranga Dev and um, ultimately he acquiesced and spoke with Raghunath. But one of the main things that he told him beside the instructions relevant to the point that I'm making here in a roundabout way, was that you want direct instruction from me, but I've put you under the care of Swarup, and he knows more than me. So don't think that I'm cheating you by putting you under the care of Swarup Damodar. He knows more than me. Swarup Damodar, of course, like Ramananda, who we spoke about this morning, was deeply absorbed in the bhava and the ecstasy of Radha's love for Krishna that Mahaprabhu so much wanted to learn about, to experience, to taste, that Krishna wanted to taste and thereby understand himself better, see himself as he's seen only through the eyes of Radha who sees him perfectly as he is and is thus the way she is, pathetic and lost in love to the extent that her romantic affairs with him are the uh, constant talk of the village, Gramikata and or Prajalpo. And Mahabhu, when he did speak to Raghunath, he said, Gramikata na shunibe. So we have to harmonize these things. He said, don't engage in gossip, Gramikata, village talk, he said, she said, and all these things. This is not useful for bhakti. This will hinder your progress. So Prajalva is something like that. He said, she said, and, um, you know, in extended sense, the uh, news entertainment, I call it, it's not news, but it's a form of low-class entertainment for the most part, hashing over and rehashing over some event. They call them the talking heads, 
is talking from one angle or another over some detail of whether some celebrity was in jail or not or some politician, some small detail about somebody and they magnify it and you've seen it. You've been engaged in that. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> not very useful for bhakti. Too much of that can be problematic. Village talk. Maybe it's a global village, but still, it's that's more or less what it is. This is a waste of time. But at the same time, as I say, there is some village talk that uh, is um, the talk of those who have crossed beyond the reach of the Veda, that sober sound addressing our eternal need and trying to um, bring us into balance from our out-of-balance condition of intoxicated life, thinking ourselves to be something other than what we are, to bring sense to us and sobriety, tattvam asi, aham brahmasmi, these kind of statements of the Upanishads, you're not the body, you're not what you think you are, wake up, these kind of sobering statements. Beyond that, Mahabharu told that Shrotam Apiopanishadam Dure Harikatamrita. The sounds, these sobering sounds of the Upanishads that cause us to retire our emotional fantasy life and become silent and sober and retreat within and uh, be introspective and so forth. He said, these sounds of the Upanishad that people look to as the guiding light and the be-all and end-all in enlightened sound, he said, these sounds, Shrotam Opi Upanishadam Dure Hodikatamrita, they are very far, they leave us very far from the nectar of Harikata, where you can go by that. These sounds, Harikata, that is all Gramyakata, not the kind of Gramyakata that Mahaprabhu told Raghunathasi should not be involved in, village talk, but the village talk about Radha and Krishna. He said, she said, this kind of thing. When I was a kid, and this was like in the 50s, and those days it was common in America for women to talk on the phone a lot. They weren't working that much. They weren't allowed to work that much, I guess, or it just wasn't uh, fashionable. So they would uh, just talk on the phone and gossip about what was happening around the town and so forth. This kind of thing. He said and she said, and did you know about this? And, and In Vrindavan, there's this kind of talk is always going around about Radha and Krishna. Psst, did you know? Did you see? Did you hear? And this kind of talk that it leaves us the sobriety, enlightenment that we can get from the sounds of the Upanishads, that these, um, that is left far behind. Kampashru, Pulukadaya, then all these transformations, astasat Bhikkhu-Bhikkhar, will appear in, uh, in one and have a form that just practically constituted of such a bhava, emotional ecstasy that's not sitting quietly, sober, meditative, and so forth, but following the dancing of Radha and Krishna and the roller coaster, romantic love life that is their leela. Not moving in a straight line, but unpredictable. So this kind of talk, then, as we become sober and come down from the intoxication of bodily conception of life in the context of Hari Bhakti, we can enter into another kind of intoxication, not just to sit still forever quietly, but to enter the Leela and all this type of talk. So he told Raghunath, don't engage in prajalpa. But he also told him to always think of Radha and Krishna. And it comes to this. This is then, what is the preoccupation? What's to be talked about? We find Radha herself engaged in this kind of mad talking. When Mahaprabhu was in Puri, in his Antilila, at the end of his pastimes, then he had performed Namsan Kirtan publicly for quite some time. He had traveled to different places 
throughout practically the length and breadth of India, enlightening people, educated people, spiritually well-situated people, taking them to his revolutionary idea of spirituality and showing compassion to all types of ordinary people and so forth, even the animals in the jungle and so forth. After all this, then, after a very considerable campaign of outreach, he reached deeply within, retired from that in Jagannath Puri, in the company of Sarup and Rai Ramananda. And in particular at that time, it is mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita that he became absorbed in the lilas of the Lord, a vipralamba of separation, in the mood of Radha's separation from Krishna. These type of lilas he would contemplate. As I said before, this is like the low tide of the ocean of Bhakti Rasa. At low tide you can enter. In high tide, then there's not much scope for entering. So he's the vipralamba murti, the very form of love and separation, and shows us how to enter. First, cheto darpana marjanam, some cleansing of the heart through all this namsan, kirtan, preaching, circulating around and so forth. It's quite a task, consuming task for the mind and intellect with that to try to make a relevant presentation of the ideal of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, for him to make, of his ideal, to uh, people, especially educated people, steeped in another religious conception, steeped in Bhadi Bhakti, like in the south, the uh, head priest of the Ramanuja Sampradaya, steeped in logic, like um, Sarvabhama Bhattacharya, and Advaita Vedanta, like Prakashananda Saraswati, and so forth. In scholarship, like uh, Keshava Kashmiri. And of course, he did so, and um, so he set an example for us. He did it a little more simply than we could, because of the power, of the force of his realization. The more realization you have, the less you have to have to say. He didn't have to say much. There was much power behind whatever he said. And so he converted all these people. We have little realization, so we have to say a lot. But that speaking then will give us more realization also. And so from outreach he went to reaching deeply within and retired in the company, as I say, of Roy Ramanand and Sarup Damodar. And there it is mentioned in particular that it, often he became absorbed in the mood of Radha, after the departure of Krishna from Vrindavan, brought out in Bhagavatam at the time when Uddhava came as a messenger from Dwarka on behalf of Krishna to uh, deliver a message to the inhabitants of Vrindavan and to the gopis in particular. It's mentioned in the 47th chapter of the 10th canto of Bhagavatam, this incident Uddhava was the most learned man and the confidant of Krishna in Dwarka, his advisor, friend and servant and very learned uh, fellow, most learned fellow. And it's significant that he was chosen to go to Vrindavan to deliver a message to the gopis. He gave a message that, oh, something to the effect, there's no cause for lamentation. God is everywhere. He's in everything. By will of providence, people are separated and brought together again. There's nothing we can do about that. Be sober, be wise. This kind of message he sent to the gopis who were crying. and So basically, Uddhava's message to the gopis was, don't cry, everything's all right. Be philosophical. Look at the bigger picture here. Love comes and goes, this is his nature. But when he saw the nature of their love and how they were absorbed in loving Krishna. He wanted to be that absorbed. He thought, if, if I, I could have that kind of intensity of love for Krishna, I've been come here to tell them to stop crying, but how can I tell them to stop crying? I would wish I could cry like that in separation from Krishna. It's one thing to cry because of being separated from so-called loved ones in the material world who aren't what they appear to be. They're like dreams that come and go. This is another case with Krishna. My duty is to tell you to stop crying, but I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, I wish I could cry like this with such intensity. I could love Krishna. So it was a difficult task. Nonetheless, of course, he delivered the message and it didn't go over too well with the gopis. They were far from 
the sounds of the Upanishads and all that sobering wisdom. They were lost in emotional love for Krishna and Prem. And uh, they thought, what is this? Krishna is sending us a message of Gyan. We are not interested in Gyan. We are interested in loving him in ways that some people don't even understand to be bhakti. It's such a far reach of bhakti, the prem, prem bhakti, hard to, uh, hard to understand, hard to explain, as I said. So it was a consuming engagement to do so. Mahaprabhu again showed this example. Absorb your mind like this. And kirtan has the power to do so. And thus you'll be able to easily retire. Mind absorbs and enter within my leela. The message, anyway, the Buddha didn't go over that well. They thought, what is this? He's sending us wisdom of the Upanishads. They would say, we're just village girls, what do we know about that? Speaking in this way, they're telling us, who cares for that? That is nothing where you can arrive at by thinking such contemplation, such introspection from where you can arrive at by loving Krishna. And Uddhava could understand that he was becoming further enlightened as to the the measure of the the gopis love, which... The whole of the Dwarkalila in one sense is to showcase Krishna leaving Vrindavan ostensibly to cast light back on it, a measure of their intensity and absorption and love of Krishna so that we might know this is the standard. You see, he brought them pain. I said earlier, there may be difficulty. They accepted it and we are benefiting from that. Krishna is showing us so that we can be clear. This is our path. This is our ideal. This is where we should go. Mahaprabhu, of course, knew that himself. There's another reason why he heard from Ramananda Roy. He was going preaching, and before he really got started, he stopped and heard from Ramananda, what is the goal of life, and then how to attain it. Having heard that, he could never go anywhere else. He could never be deviated. He was fit to preach everywhere. No other conception could possibly attract him. Once one of my godbrothers who had stayed with Pujapad Sridhar Maharaj under Prabhupada's direction when Prabhupada was here, his name was Achyutananda Maharaj. He was living in India and Prabhupada was in America for some time and he wrote to Prabhupada saying that he needed some association of perhaps a Siksha Guru. So Prabhupada recommended him, you go to my godbrother Sridhar Maharaj of Navadweep and would speak of how you can benefit. I consider him my Siksha Guru as well. So he stayed there for several months. Sridhar Maharaj knew him pretty well. And then when Prabhupada came back to India, then Chutananda rejoined him and he preached in Iskon and so forth for, for many years, of course. And um, years later, after Prabhupada disappeared from the world and we were with Srila Sridhar Marsh, the news came that Chutananda Marsh had written a book entitled Autobiography of a Jewish Yogi. And it was a, a kind of a creative approach to... Uh, informing people about the Godivedanta, Krishna consciousness. Apparently he was from a Jewish family, and of course he had become a yogi. And there was a famous book called Autobiography of a Yogi. And if there is a Jewish anything, then you know a lot of people are going to read that. There's a lot of Jewish people, I guess, in the world. So, Autobiography of a Jewish Yogi. So, the way it came to Sridhar Maharaj, he thought they had said that Sridhar has become a Jewish yogi. <laughs> and he said, how is it possible? And he was with Swami Maharaj, and then he spent time with me, and he learned what is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's ideal, and he became a Jewish yogi. <laughs> How is it possible? Such a this is such a high idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. His idea was, if you hear about this, really, then it's difficult to go anywhere else. If you hear from the right person, from deeply realized person who share their affection for you, their compassion, their concern for you. And it's difficult. We may try to get away, but it's it's difficult to brand it. And so Mahaprabhu, in a sense, he was prepared for going south. And this is the start of his preaching tour. He stopped Sarvabhoma wisely. His Siksha Guru said, do you see Ramananda? You have something in common. As we talked this morning, then he heard the high ideal of Radha Prem and Mahabhav and, and how to attain that and so forth, then he could go anywhere and preach successfully and uplift people, upgrade their theistic conception, their their uh, approach to transcendence. So, 
this high ideal personified by Radha in particular, Mahaprabhu was contemplating her separation, and particularly this is mentioned, this meeting with Uddhava, the condition of Radha at that time, Mahaprabhu was experiencing, contemplating that wave, that low tide of separation, giving him entrance into the ocean of love. There, when Uddhava came to speak and gave the message, they're a little excited that Krishna sent the message. Not so excited because he didn't come himself. And so then, you know, you get a letter from your lovey and you don't know what's, what's going to be in that. What's he going to say? Why didn't he come? What if it's, uh, you know, he's rejecting me or something? Anyway, the letter was a bit of a letdown. But, again, part of the letter was to instruct Uddhava and all of us that what is the measure of the gopi's love? How high is that? So, when I heard the letter, they were dissatisfied, and then Radharani kind of looked away, and one honeybee was circulating around. And so she began to talk to the bee as if it were a messenger of Krishna. I mean, people who talk to bees are a little crazy. <laughs> so she engaged in prajalpa, sujalpa, pratijalpa, this jalpa, that. It's all chitra jalpa, dubyon mad, crazy talk. It was. First she began to chastise the bee. What kind of messenger are you? You come, you try, don't try to get close to me. Don't land on my feet. I can see who you represent, you six-legged creature. It's kind of a derogatory term, like you would call a person four-legged. You're nothing but a four-legged, six-legged, even worse. She's speaking about Krishna like this. This is obviously from the point of view of Vaikuntha in the religious circle. This is madness. Can't talk about him like that, <laughs> but she could, in love, criticizing him in every way. And then the bee disappeared. And then she became worried. Oh no, he's going to go and talk to Krishna and say all those things, and maybe he won't come back ever. And then she began to move in another direction in her emotion, and love, and affection, and attachment for Krishna. And the bee reappeared. Then she began to speak. Well, that's Krishna's. Actually, you know, it's it's my fault. It's not his fault. Certainly he went to Mathura with the permission of Nanda Maharaj, who pledged to bring him back, but he was bewildered by the city people there, the trickery of Devaki and Vasudev, who said, come on now, your son has to be educated, right? And Sandipani Muni is such a qualified person, he's right here, so let us keep him here and give him an education. And Nanda Maharaj was taken in by these city people. He was just a country person, a cow person. So their sophisticated approach bewildered him. He went back empty-handed without Krishna. Although he had vowed to everyone, I'll bring him right back. Of course, they didn't hold it against him because they could see his condition, that he was so overwhelmed himself by the thought that Krishna hadn't come back. Radharani told him, Krishna's gone to Mathura, and Nandamarsh promised to bring him back, but he couldn't bring him back. So Krishna himself must have been also bewildered by those city people. Now Nandamarja's house is full of cobwebs and overgrown grass and dust and all of his friends, the cowherds also, they just sit and mope and, and we gopis are just crying. And Krishna probably wants to come back, but those city girls are trying to keep him there and so forth. So she would go back and forth like this in her crazy talk, trying to get Krishna off of her mind and unable to, then she would speak favorably about him and then unfavorably about And Uddhava was witnessing this. She's talking to a bumblebee in this, this kind of madness. This is some type of prajalpa also. This kind of talk is our ideal to become absorbed in this. It's aprakrita. It looks like the material world, but it's not at all. We should take from it that we should not be engaged in such madness of talk based on bodily conception of life. That kind of prajalpa we should give up, and this is the way to give it up, to become absorbed in these stories about Krishna's Leela and all the goings-on of the village of Vrindavan. Much to talk about there. So Rupa Goswami says otherwise, giving the higher idea of prajalpa that's favorable, ordinary village talk, gossip, and so forth, criticizing other people, useless argument. Argument has a value to a point. 
to establish the truth, but it has to be entered into with persons who are interested in coming to the truth rather than just asserting their position. And we find many people in the world, they just want to assert their position. They don't actually want to talk and come to, let's put all the facts on the table and look at it objectively and so forth. They want to take one or two statements out of context, make a religion out of that, and fight with everybody over it and so forth. They call it preaching. They do it on the computer often. They get behind a computer and just argue with people. He did this, they did that, this group did this, distort things, we're the best group, and so forth. This is all prajalpa. It's not preaching. Argument, discussion, that is good. And there should be some standard of knowledge by which drawing upon we can arrive at conclusive truth and better ourselves in our position, grow in our understanding. We don't enter into these uh, discussions with, uh, we enter with a view to learn and grow with the prospect that maybe they have something to say. Let me listen. If they don't, then that's, that's another thing. You can make your point. Hopefully they will listen. If they don't, then we don't bother. Just arguing, just bolster the ego and the false pride to be right. So these days in the Gaudiya community, there's so much of this going on. It's called preaching. We call it prajalpo. And their bhakti is going down. And you can see it. Their bhakti is going down only. And then becoming interested in other ways, like we said the other morning, to control their mind from importing things into bhakti to make it better and, and so forth. And this way, bhakti is binash. And a good reason for this is prajalpa. Well, that includes, as I say, criticizing others. Now, there may be a place for constructively criticizing others to teach. We find examples like this even in the Bhagavad and in the preaching of great souls. That is another thing. It's constructive. It's uh, well-founded and, and so forth. But um, much of what goes on in the name of that is not that. And the evidence that it's not is those participating in it. Their bhakti goes down and become lifeless. And love is lost, and only laws to keep people. We came because of love, and then we become imprisoned by some misinterpretation of love, the rules and the laws, you must do it like this. And you're not happy, but you go on with it. You don't know any better. So be careful. Know what is bhakti, and see that by your practice and by your company, you're going up in terms of what you came for. It's very simple. Why did you join? Why have you come all this way and changed your life and your dress and abandoned certain associations and so forth and so on? Your heart should become happy by this. Not as it become drudgery to go on. It should be uplifting. So you know what you want and it should be coming. If it's not, then you have to be introspective and think why. And It's why these kind of things are talked about by Rupa Goswami. Maybe you're eating too much, maybe prash, maybe prajalpo, especially when it comes to criticizing others. And what if it speak if others are great devotees, well-wishers, even people whom the founder, for example, is considered his own Siksha Guru, which people should be revered by us, brought in the company of, introduced to for the sake of our growth and progress. So this kind of thing also comes somewhat in the realm of Prajalpa, you can see when it goes to this extent, how it destroys bhakti. So this should be avoided. Prajalpa and niyamagraha, he says. Next thing. Niyama agraha and niyamagraha means that there are some guidelines. Niyama. The things that you should and shouldn't do. Yama niyama. And we should know why we should do them or why we shouldn't do them. In other words, they are not an end unto themselves. They have a purpose. Rules have a purpose. You have to become acquainted with the purpose behind the rule. And when you are acquainted with it, when you understand it, then you can apply the English adage that rules are meant to be broken. There's a saying like this. Rules are meant to be broken. There's a place for breaking rules. Rules have a purpose, and when that purpose is served, then their being followed 
even if they're not being followed, apparently. Do you understand? So there'll be rules at different levels for us. Just like Krishna says in the Gita, Sarva-dharman pritya-ja, mamikam saranam braja. Give up the rules and come to me. Sarva-dharman. You know how many dharma shastras there are? Maybe 20-something, 21, 22. Big volumes like Manu Samhita and others of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Codes for human society, to regulate human society in such a way that the whole of humanity has a religious color to it. And our human activities are brought in connection with the divine in a general sense. It's a considerable volume of texts and advices and guidelines and rules and regulations for human society, religious rules. Dharma Shastra and Krishna says, in the Gita, he says, break them all, give them up. Sarva dharman ami kam sharanam braja. Just take shelter of me. And if you can forgo all this other stuff, don't worry about it. And what he's really saying is, by taking shelter of me, the purpose that all those rules sought to bring about, the fulfillment of all those rules is realized. So they're being followed even when they're being broken. Do you understand? This is the idea. So there will be rules given to us at different levels. Krishna's articulating there in Gita the eligibility for bhakti, whereby rules that are for those who have not yet developed the faith to tread the path of bhakti, they have another kind of faith. Faith is, we are our faith. Krishna says it in the Gita, maybe in a Shaddhamayo Vayam Purushaha. A person is his or her faith. So, we can't tread the karma marg because we don't have faith in it. <laughs> the sadhus have effectively just eroded any faith we could have in that. Why you do that? Go to heaven just to come back down. This is that foolish. So you can't do it. You don't have faith in it. So you can't do it. You have faith in bhakti. You can't do that either, but you can try. And you can't do anything else. So you can't go anywhere else if you make a mistake. or You have to just keep going on this path. There's no other atonement that you can do. Because this is your faith now, you see. This is a huge thing to create awakened faith in, in Krishna Bhakti. And once you're on the path, no other rules really apply to you. There are some governing principles for Bhakti. That's a fact. And we'll talk about that. But first of all, one of the meanings of Niyamagraha is that you should not follow rules that pertain to an earlier stage of your progress once you have transcended that. You should not now go back and think it's dependent upon this when you're in another stage. So there's progress moves like this through acceptance and rejection. At some point we have to accept certain rule that will be good for me. When I get the result from that, then... At another stage, the mandate will be to leave that behind. So Krishna's saying this in the Gita. I've taught you so many things now. Here's what I'm really saying. Just take shelter of me. See who I am. I've shown you in so many ways. I've talked about it, and I've shown you practically. I'm capable. Depend on me. You have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. If you forego all the Dharma, there will not be any loss taking shelter of me. It's a huge statement to make to such a religiously stout person as Arjun, who lived such a paka life as a chatriya, religious man, and followed all the rules of the Dharma Shastra very carefully. Huge statement to make. Krishna's pushing him. Not pushing him. He's begging him in the Gita. Please, this is what I want. That stuff doesn't really attract me. It's good for some people on that level, but you... I see in you something else, some potential. So now you should come. You should come the distance. You should move from that position to this position. Practically, Krishna is pleading with him. Of course, the answer is the call. And we should too, hearing that. Well, this is one meaning of Niyamagraha, that we should not follow rules that pertain to a lower stage once we've come to a higher stage. We should not be worried about that, bothered about that and think that our present position is in order to be sustained there, to maintain there, to progress there, is dependent upon that. We have to see the big picture. At one time, 
joining a particular group may be the best thing. Another time, it's possible leaving it may be the best thing, even in the context of bhakti. One has to think about it, be sincere and to see, yes, that doesn't pertain to me anymore. And move forward. And so then, what about us? I mean, we are not religiously uh, mostly stout like Arjun, and we have all come to bhakti through sadhusanga, kind of the back door. It's the front door in one sense, but sadhus are rare also. Akshnofalam, sudulava bhagavata hiloke, akshnofalam, tadrisha, katrasanga, akshnofalam, tadrisha darshanam hi, akshnofalam, tadrisha katrasanga, sudulava bhagavata hiloke, that person who is the perfection of seeing him is the perfection of the eyes to uh, speak about her, the perfection of speech, to associate with perfection of touch and association, very rare to find in this world. The religious injunctions are out there for everybody in one form or another to follow, and the masses of people will take that up to one extent or another, Dharma Shastra, but to associate with the sadhu, they don't generally move in the public, or if they do, they're not, they're a little odd. <laughs> and so the public is a little bit, well, I don't know if I can talk to that fellow. He looks a little different. So it's a rare opportunity. But a little of that goes a long way. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Koya, Lava Matra, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hai. All Dharma can be crossed over, and you can have eligibility for bhakti by just a little association with a real bhakta. How far you've come then. Or the force of his or her love and affection, compassion. When it is reposed in us, then that brings about a good fortune for us. Just that, even by the glance, it's possible. Such people can transcend the whole of the Dharma, Karma Marg, and have eligibility to enter the door of the house of bhakti and tread the path of Prem Dharma. So we've come that way. This is the secret way. This is the fast way, the fast track. And so we may not have been involved in even a very overtly religious life in a systematic way, like you find in Karma Marg. It's a very systematic and well-organized religious conception. So then, well, it's not such a big thing for us in one sense. That's why I try to emphasize it and cite the example of Arjun, who was like that. What it meant for him to hear that from Krishna, forego the Dharma? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> the whole lifetime, following this, and there are so many shastras, and we're supposed to follow the scripture and so forth. Krishna's trying to take him deeper inside the secret message of the texts and so forth, from religious life to experiential, spiritual life and more, not just to color your human life with religiousness, but to actually realize the difference between matter and spirit. I'm not human. I'm soul. And what is the prospect of the soul, for that matter? And such a high ideal Mahaprabhu has for us, and so forth. So, that Krishna is speaking to Arjuna about. So, at any rate, we've come to this. And then when we come inside of bhakti, then there are some rules for bhakti. And they have a purpose also. They have a purpose. And we must be acquainted with the purpose. Otherwise, when we're not acquainted with the purpose, we think the rules are the goal. Then we become rule-oriented. And somebody says, for example, oh, you're our main kirtan leader, but you've done something wrong. Therefore, you cannot lead kirtan anymore. If you haven't done anything wrong, you cannot do the thing that will correct you, that will improve your situation anymore. The rule will only correct you. No, that's not the idea. Do you understand? This is backwards. Because they think the rule is the goal. So if you don't follow the rule, if you fall short of following the rule, then now you cannot do bhakti. <laughs> this is a crazy idea. This is completely backwards. And how we will come under any rule is only by affection really, in this mark, in this path. Prabhupada used to say that his group was to be governed by two rules, love and trust, some generosity and dealings with one another and so forth, and harikata, krishna sankirtan, all this in the center. 
this in the, in the foreground. That'll bring everyone's progress. And if we can create an environment that fosters that and so forth, everyone will be uplifted. So the rules, at any rate, even in the context of bhakti, they have a purpose to them. And really there are, I like to call them, as I said earlier, just ways of positioning oneself such as to attract the attention and sympathy of, of Krishna. So we should know what is the ideal. People very much, even within bhakti, they lose sight of this. The example came the other day to me when uh, someone was asking about the hells described in Srimad Bhagavatam. And someone told me that they were told by a so-called advanced devotee, don't think that these hells mentioned in the fifth canto of the Bhagavatam don't pertain to you. They do. So read this section real carefully. Okay. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> this is what he says. So this is a very backwards idea because there are whole types of hells mentioned in the Bhagavatam, in the fifth canto. Parikshit Maharaj had asked the sage Sukha to tell me about the nature of the material world because I understand that's one of the shaktis of Bhagawan, and by understanding it, I'll have more impetus for loving him. I'll know something more about him by knowing about his shakti. So he said, I'll tell you what I can. I'll tell you about the world in terms of how the uh, historians of the time are thinking about it. And then, of course, he begins a description of the cosmology that you find in the Bhagavatam, which is very different than what you find in modern science. You should know what brought about that discussion. Sukadev prefaces his answer by saying, I'll tell you what I can. It's basically a transformation of the gunas, mystical transformation of the modes of nature. But as the Puranic historians of the time have described it, I'll describe it to you. What's really happening there in that section of the Bhagavatam is Sukadev is explaining to Prikshit Marsh how extraordinary material nature is, how far out it is, and it's only the shadow of Bhagavan's life. It's like God in the shadow, the shadow he casts, something like that. The point being that the material world is absolutely fascinating and endlessly mutable, and you can study just an atom forever and never get to the bottom of it. What is it? This is what he's saying there, and this is what the king wanted to hear, like, wow, and this is just his material, maya shakti, the material nature. It's fascinating. So you can find people in modern science who think like that. They look at material nature and they just think, wow, this is just fascinating. They're getting it. They're getting the kind of, in a sense, the experience that Parikshit Maharaj wanted. The details are really not important. And for that matter, they're going to be probably continually and forever different, or there'll be more details. It's like this. No, it's like that. No, the sun's here. No, the moon's there. No, it's like, this is the nature of the whole thing. This is what he's really saying there. It's fascinating. And the more you look at it, the closer you think you're getting to understanding it, the more you see it's impossible to figure out. And you make your calculations in astrophysics and there's these huge numbers and all this uh, invisible numbers, so many things. It's a way of kind of coming out of a finite conception of reality. Even in the material world, there are unlimited souls. Sometimes people ask, well, if all the souls go, then what will be left here? And the answer is that there's infinite souls in the material world. There is no finite. It's only a perception. So the whole point of, in one sense, of that section of the Bhagavatam, if we trace it to the question of the Raj, what he wanted to know, tell me about the fascinating nature of material existence. Sukadeva says, well, I'll try. The details that he gives there are not important. What's important is to get the sense that the world is just fascinating and you can't reach an end of it. But to speak of Krishna, you can't bring the material world between your ears and figure it all out. And the more you try to do so, the more elusive it becomes. Particles turn into waves and waves turn into particles and you're just getting down to the, you know, the smallest particle and analyzing it and the whole thing turns upside down and you don't know where to go from there. This is, this is what he's saying. And that's what science is saying. 
also any good scientist. You can't get a grip on it. You're having the same experience by examining the material world. In one year, it's everything orbits around the Earth. And the next year, all the rules are broken that they were going by. Everything was based on rules of physics and whatnot, centered around the conception that the planets revolved around the Earth, and Copernicus was a heretic, right? He said, no, it's actually everything going around the sun. And so when that heresy was finally embraced and accepted, if you think about it, then so many of the rules, the, the laws that the world was thought to be run by were suspended. Even though they didn't understand the laws, they thought they did. We think we have to. We don't necessarily. And neither is it possible to get a grip on it. What to speak then of Krishna? This is the whole idea, the fifth candle of the Bhagavatam. That's like one side of it. And then when we come to the hells, it was describing the cosmology, describes the hells. It concludes with that. If you do this, you're going to burn in oil here. If you do that, you're going to go here and all these different hells. And so, after that, it's all over. Then we come to the sixth canto. What does the king ask Sugadev? Boy, that was hellish, that last part. He said, how can people be saved from this that they won't go to these hells? They won't have to come under the rule of Yama. Yama means laws, really, rules. And the Lord of Death, he's like... Yama Niyama, we're talking about, right? Niyamagraha, Niyama. So he's saying, how can we become free from laws? How can we really come and enter into the flow of the fact that reality is without law? It's love. It's lila. Lokavatulilakaiwalayam, the whole material world, the sutra said, it's coming out of joy. It's the Shrishti lila of Bhagavan. We try to make sense out of it, but love knows no reason. We keep trying to fit it within our head to control the whole thing, as we were talking this morning. Tendency for karma and jnana, there are two different tendencies to try to control it. It's Krishna dancing in one form or another. Shrishti Lila, the creation, is also a type of Lila. The whole world is such, you can't harness the whole thing. You have to just, as I said this morning, put your hands up, Hare Krishna, surrender, throw yourself in the hands of the Absolute, and enter into that love life. So Pariksha Marsh wants to know that. That's what he's interested in. How can I get to that? How can I get beyond the, overtly says, the hells? How can we save people from Yamaraj, from all the rules and all this tendency to want to control, get a grip and a control on the whole thing? This is maya. Maya means to measure. That's what it means. So the tendency to want to measure that which is infinite, this is illusion. This is not possible. That's what we try to do. We try to bring it within our head and get a handle on it. And then we feel some security. No, you cannot measure it. We want it to make sense. We want it to answer to our intellect. It doesn't answer to our intellect. It tells us very clearly your intellect is not a fit instrument here. If you want to know, there's another way for knowing and it comes from up to down. If God wants to show himself, he can be known, otherwise not. Position yourself such that you draw his sympathy and he reveals himself. Mind and intellect have no capacity to go there to show what he can show. And Sridhar Marsh used to like to say, the finite cannot know the infinite. It's mathematically impossible. How can the finite know the infinite? He said, well, if the infinite chooses to reveal itself to the finite, infinite can do anything, it's infinite, then it is possible for the finite to know. So this is approach to bhakti. The king, Pariksit Marjan Bhagavatam, he wants to know, how can we be freed from yama, from hell, from rules, <laughs> from, from this tendency of trying to control the whole thing, something like that. And what does he say? How can we be free from, save people from hell? What does Sukadev say? He says, not by Yam, I can tell you that. Not by karma. No. These paths will not help you. Aghamdun vartikarchnaya niraha iva bhaskara. He says, like the sun comes up and dissipates the fog automatically by bhakti, 
which comes of its own accord. Bhakti comes from up to down. Only bhakti gives bhakti. You cannot reach out and get bhakti on your own strength. If bhakti wants to come to you, you can have bhakti. Otherwise not. And you cannot say where she can go and where she cannot go and try to rule over her. No. She's independent. She goes wherever she wants. And it may surprise you. Why she's going there? He's not qualified. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> this is offense to bhakti. This is, this is you to learn from this. Oh, she can go anywhere. That's her prerogative. She's independent. Her Lord is independent. She's independent. Seeks no qualification and gives all qualification by going there. He says, by getting bhakti, that's how we can do this. And then he tells a story. What story does he tell? How does the sixth canto begin? He tells the story of Ajamil. And in that story is the glorification of Nam, Krishna Nam. What was the position of Ajamil? He broke the rules, isn't it? He broke all the rules. He fell, broke all the rules. But somehow, he had the wisdom to name his son Narayan. And so at the time of death, he called Narayan, Narayan. And when the agents from hell came to get him, the agents from Vaikuntha came and said, you have no jurisdiction here. They had no hell for these people who sing the name of Narayan, name of God. They cannot be touched. They're beyond rules. They're beyond this. Even if they sing casually, without full understanding, just a shadow, reflection of the name, they never even see this hell. never come anywhere near it. So, you should know, these hells, they don't pertain to you. <laughs> That's our teaching. They have nothing to do with you. That's the teaching of Srimad Bhagavatam. It's a doctrine of love. Love, compassion, spiritual, highest love, Mahabhav. We speak of being beyond the rules, beyond of Dharma, beyond the rules of Vaikuntha, the range of the Upanishads and so forth, so high in this being offered to us. We should be encouraged by that. To do what? Knowing the purpose behind the rules, that we accept rules for the purpose of going there, keeping that in mind, what should we do? We should follow the rules. <laughs> we should follow the rules of bhakti that will serve our purpose for going there. If we have that ideal in mind, like we spoke earlier today, we'll be not like following any rules. It would be natural and easy for us to do. And if there's any shortcoming then, you have nowhere else to turn. Just go forward. Keep going. The example is there in Bhagavatam. Running, falling, tripping, chanting, sleeping, any kind of this chanting of the Nam, that will be useful. That will be good for you. Almost you can't do anything wrong. If you offend the name, then that's another thing. That we should avoid. So Niyamagraha means to know the purpose behind the rules. So the rules don't become the goal and love is lost because you should know that in following rules, there's no love. And in love, there's no rules. That's a fact. In love, there's no rules. In love, one knows what to do. In love, your mind becomes my mind, my mind becomes your mind, the two become we, a unit, and there's no need for any rules. You know what to do. It's natural. Spontaneous. You don't have to be told what to do. Neither can you teach love. All we can do is express our love and it will be contagious. People will catch it. I mean, you're not here to follow rules. You're here to listen to me. Of course, I do give some rules, I suppose. But, <laughs> but something else that's attracting you, whatever love I have for Krishna, that you're attracted to. So we should know the purpose behind any scriptural injunctions we follow, and then we can know when to break them, when it will be useful to break them. This is preaching. This required. This is required. No, I know Prabhupada said that. I'm saying this. That was then, and this is now. Sound bold? It's not bold at all. It's the very standard by which the whole parampara goes on. And without that, it doesn't go on. Yes, I know he said that, and I know why he said that, where he said that, and what he meant by saying that. And I'm saying this over here, and if you have any brain and you listen to me, you'll understand, I'm saying the same thing <laughs> to accomplish the same thing. 
It sounds different, but the purpose is the same. I want the same thing out of you, and this is how you're going to get it now in this circumstance. That's why we need a Guru Parampara, because the time changes, the circumstance change, and you can just look and see how Prabhupada said it, and how some people say, well, that's not what Bhakti Siddhanta taught. <laughs> right? You can see it all the time. And you can see the same thing. Well, somebody said, well, that's not what Bhakti Vinod taught. See? It just goes on like this. No. Yes, it is the same. So he was acquainted with the substance, the whole idea behind the rules that have a purpose that they seek to fulfill is that they can be adjusted according to time and circumstances in order to allow that principle to be realized. And someone who is acquainted with the principle, then that is their task to adjust that. So don't succumb to this as a huge problem in the Gaudiya world today, huge problem. Niyamagraha. There's whole societies of Niyamagraha and Bhakti Binash that destroy the Bhakti. whole thing is lost practically. Huge problem. So we should know the purpose, and then when we know the purpose, then we embrace the guidelines that are pertinent to us in our particular situation. So Niyamagraha means not to know the purpose behind the rules, to follow them mindlessly, or to follow rules that don't pertain to my situation, as I said earlier, and it means to not follow the rules also. So both things, to know the purpose behind them and not follow them blindly and allow them to obscure the purpose and be misconstrued to be the goal themselves, that will destroy bhakti. And the other side, then not to follow those that are pertinent to you, to be lax in that, that will not help your bhakti. So... Rupa Goswami says, Atyahara prayashascha prajalpo niyamagraha and janasanga cha sadbir bhakti vinashati. Janasanga, next thing. Don't associate with worldly people. Janasanga. And you say, you know, wait a minute, I've got to go to work. <laughs> there's a lot of worldly people out there and there's very few devotees. What am I supposed to do? No, association means to embrace the same ideas. So you should keep your idea by being well grounded in this, by hearing from saintly people. And then you go and share your ideas. As much as people are into sharing ideas, then you share yours with them. Obviously, you have to meet with people sometimes that are not cherishing and relishing the same ideal. So we don't associate intimately with them consider their ideas and possibly let's try that and so forth, this kind of idea, something like that. Janasanga, that would not be helpful. And lolium means greediness and we should be greedy for bhakti, not for anything else. Otherwise our bhakti will be affected. So we'll stop there. Any question? Yes. I was thinking of, I remember someone saying that you could say that hell is any place where people don't serve Krishna or where people don't know Krishna. But like someone living on this earth in a maybe materially really perfect conditions could actually be living in hell. So all the flames and fires and stuff would just be like metaphorical. You could think of it like that. <laughs> there are certainly hellish conditions on earth. There's no doubt about that. From the point of view of Ramananda, the most hellish thing is to be separated from advanced devotees. That's a fire, he says. The whole world is called samsara dhavana. Dhavana means fire, it's burning. Right? This metaphor is given, fire of desire, that we're burning in the fire of desire. So you could see that people who are absorbed in just material desire, they're burning. And um, look at that to be a hellish condition. Yeah. You're asking whether there actually are literally the kind of hellish conditions described in the Bhagavatam. Is that what you're saying? Rather than thinking of it metaphorically to be a condition in the world devoid of bhakti and just centered on material desire, is that your question? Well, I guess I tend to think of those. Yeah, so I said you can think of it like that. No problem. But I've never been to hell, so I can't tell you. <laughs> and different acharyas have looked at it in different ways. It's not really the point of the Bhagavatam to prove the literal reality of such hells, then I don't give it much 
consideration, but I center on what it's actually saying in those sections as I'm trying to relate to you. So it's not really much of a of an issue. And if people read the Bhagavatam and ask, and you say, well, you didn't read, this is what it's being said here, like I've just explained. This is what this is about. Then you don't have to argue till you know forever about whether the sun's closer or the moon or, or what, or whether the hells are this kind or that kind or so forth. It's uh, saying something more than that to all of us. The message of the Bhagavatam is, you take shelter of Nam Sankirtan. This is what it's saying. Okay. Let's stop there. Shri Rupa Prabhupada Ki Jai.